0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Most people recognize Silicon Valley as the global hub for big technology, social media, and innovative giants. But few may know that much of the financial power for Silicon Valley is centered on Sand Hill Road, part of Silicon Valley. That's an area in Northwest California where you find some of the biggest venture capital firms in the nation. Firms like Andreessen Horowitz, where our next guest serves as a managing partner. Scott Cooper, uh, Cooper excuse me, is a lawyer turned venture capitalist. As startups often depend on financiers, he has advice for entrepreneurs on how to understand and engage with VCs. The book he has authored is titled The Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Scott, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, off the top, uh, you have an a entrepreneur you meet at at some venture of some kind. Best advice you give to that person right now?
0: Yeah, best advice is just make sure uh, you understand what motivates the venture capitalists and are you aligned with their objectives. Which is, you know, venture capitalists want to invest in companies that are, you know, trying to create the next Facebook, the next Google, so big you know, self-sustaining, long-term businesses. And if that's what you want to do, then uh, I think that's the right partner
1: for you. It seems like venture capital has grown significantly in the last couple of decades, uh, and even more so on a global perspective. So what kind of impact can you, can you say that venture capital is having today?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's grown a lot. So just to give you some numbers, uh, last year, you know, in the U.S. alone, venture invested about $130 billion in startup companies and uh, also raised about you know $50 billion from our limited partners, our investors. And those are kind of basically 20-year highs, those numbers. Um, at the same time, as you talk about internationally, it used to be the case that the U.S. was the major funder of venture back companies. So, about 20 years ago, the U.S. was about 90% of all global venture capital. Today, that's about 50%. So, the pie has grown significantly, but also the relative market share of places outside the U.S. has, pretty, has grown very significantly. And if you look at a bunch of, you know, the public publicly traded companies today, I think the top five most valuable companies today were all venture-backed businesses. So the impact of venture uh, on job growth and economic growth is very, very significant.
1: So what is it that has really driv- driven that global shift in your mind over over the last several years? Uh, and I would think, in part, you, you have places like Israel where you see more and more entrepreneurship popping up uh, each and every day.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think what happened was um, – you know, for a long time, you know, a lot of venture capital was based around hardware, and so a lot of the initial venture capital, for example, went to companies like Intel and others developing chips and other hardware-based uh, products. As I think, you know, kind of software has really permeated a lot of what happens in the industry. Uh, software is much more malleable, and you know, kind of the presence of computer science students in all these different countries has really kind of fueled that behavior. And then what happens is, you know, of course, when you get a critical mass of engineers in a location, then you get kind of early-stage capital that wants to kind of fuel entrepreneurship among those groups. And so Israel, you mentioned, you know, broader Europe, certainly China and India have been big places of growth. And you know, our view is, look, over the next 20, 30, 40 years, there's probably no reason to think that we won't have uh, very broad and distributed entrepreneurship you know, in many, many new places.
1: Scott Cooper is uh, with uh, Andreessen Horowitz, a uh, lawyer-turned-venture capitalist, uh, managing partner at that uh, firm. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, 942 Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account at DanLoney21. A few things that I, I marked in the book going through it, Scott, but one of the comments you made at the in the outset of the book it got my attention. You okay. said, You say, VCs are only as good as the entrepreneur in whom... They have the privilege to invest. That kind of plays back to something you said a couple of moments ago about the relationship between the VC and the entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, this is really important. And, uh, you know, I've been in the VC world now for 10 years. But before that, I was in a startup company for about eight years. And uh, it's a really important distinction that at the end of the day, uh, VCs are a financing source, and then hopefully we can provide value in other ways. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that the hard work is being done by the entrepreneurs who are building these businesses. Uh, That is definitely kind of the Herculean effort to go from kind of conception of something into hopefully a very, you know, kind of big, publicly tradable company. And VCs can be helpful and partners along the way, but. I think where VCs can go wrong is where they confuse who's actually doing the real heavy lifting here, and there's yeah. no doubt that entrepreneurs are driving the ship there.
1: And that was one of the things I wanted to touch on anyway, so I'll bring it up now, is that yeah. you talk specifically about the role that the VC should play. Yeah. If they have invested in company X, Y, or Z, how much they should actually have their fingerprints on what's going on in the day-to-day operation.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, again, you know, having been in a startup myself, I think it's easy on the V.C. world to think that you know more about what's happening day-to-day in the company because you're on the board or because you're talking to the CEO. Uh, but the reality is, look, the magic of what you know kind of these companies are trying to do is so tied up in the individual people they have in the company, the capabilities that that team can execute on. And so again, I think where board members, sometimes, as venture capitalists, you know, kind of risk overstepping their bounds is they think they understand more about what's actually happening in the business, and sometimes try to kind of put too much, as you say of their fingerprint on the business. And the last thing you want to do is do anything that would risk the entrepreneurial spirit in which you've invested. And so being very careful to provide advice and guidance, but not to overstep those bounds, I think is a real critical role for VCs.
1: With with you being there in Silicon Valley, I'd be interested to know how much you think big data has impacted your side of the business.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, It's still pretty early to be completely honest. Um, I think there's two places that, you know, VCs are exploring big data one is, can we use big data to help kind of, uh, you know, kind of find a signal out of noise as a way to kind of generate new uh, potential companies to invest in? Um, those efforts, uh, for the most part, have not been that successful. Uh, some of that, I think, is a function that the discovery process for finding companies is not that hard in VC, which is most people generally are fishing in a lot of the same ponds, and so we kind of know uh, what uh, what the opportunities are out there. I think the more promising area for uh, for you know big data is in terms of diligence in companies. So if we can kind of amass data sets over time to help us say, hey, for this stage of company, this is kind of what we'd expect the revenues to look like based upon thousands of companies that have come before them, or this is what the daily user growth should look like, I think those things can, that can really inform the diligence process are probably the most fruitful areas to explore.
1: Scott Cooper with uh, Andreessen Horowitz and also the author of the book Secrets of Sand Hill Road is our guest. Your comments, welcome at 844 Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, 942 Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I, I find this book interesting because there's an element of how-to in, in your book in terms of kind of leading the entrepreneur and understanding the venture capital world. And, and one of the points you bring up, which is really a basic concept in a lot of business these days it 's brought up a lot when you 're talking about trying to find the right investment advisor, is just start by asking the right questions
0: yeah, I know it is uh, it's interesting you know particularly out here in the valley, you know there are seemingly a lot of resources that you can go to to kind of get the answers to these questions. but the genesis of the book was I kept hearing a recurring set of questions from entrepreneurs over the last ten years. And you're exactly right, which was they go to the very heart and the very, you know, foundational nature of the relationship. You know, the the thing I mentioned in the book, of course, is that, you know, unfortunately – some VC relationships will last longer than the mar- A an average marriage in the U.S. <laughs> which unfortunately, is only only eight years versus kind of the ten plus years that we often spend with our companies. Right. And you know, look, just like in any good relationship, you got to kind of know your partner. You got to do the dating process. And uh, you know, I think people sometimes uh, don't pay enough attention to that.
1: And, and you even talk about the fact that there are instances where, for an entrepreneur and that startup, that VC funding may not be the way to go.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, uh, you know, taking money from a VC means that you are aligned with what their objectives are, which is, you know, you both need to believe that the goal here is we may not succeed, but can we try to build a company of the scale or scope of a Facebook or a Google or, a you know, Apple or an Amazon? And there's nothing wrong inherently if that's not your objective, but I think it's, uh, it's always dangerous if you have a different objective to kind of align yourself with people who, uh, you know, have uh, different views about what success looks like
1: you talk uh, uh, quite a bit about the the issue of success uh, and, and understanding that the success rates for startups are are not great right out of the gate you you see quite a few uh that that do not you know, reach the level of success, let alone closing their doors. And, and you take it through a kind of a baseball analogy in your book uh, in, in terms, and, and I'm a baseball guy, so I, it jumped oh, right out to, at me, that the, you're talking about a success rate that is not going to be very good. And the expectation is you should probably understand that that success rate is, is not great.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, look, building a startup is incredibly hard. Uh, you know, you have to kind of be partly delusional to do it because it's just – an incredibly difficult path and you've got to kind of start from scratch and convince people to come work for you before you've shown anything. And as you said, I mean, you know, the way our business works is probably as much as half of what we do, we end up losing all of our money on. So there's no success there. And, you know, the baseball analogy works or, you know, I've got kids. And so, you know, if your kids came home every day and they scored 50 percent on tests, you'd be pretty disappointed in this business. You know, that's just kind of par for the course. So, so much of this business is a function of finding those one or two needles in the haystack that can ultimately drive most of the returns for uh, for the for the firms that are investing in them.
1: So within the VC community, there's a there's obviously a, an understanding that that success ratio is going to be low. I would imagine that at times it's probably hard to relate that to the entrepreneur to the you know to the lead of the startup who expects that when that partnership is built out that that success rate is probably going to be 100. percent
0: That's exactly right. Yeah, and so look, part of what we have to do, and, and we talk about this a lot, is. You know, we're going to ultimately make our money as investors on the companies that succeed and that are winners financially. Uh, but we we make our reputation on the ones that don't succeed. And so I think one of the things that for your you know listeners who are thinking about being entrepreneurs is make sure you understand, you know what is kind of the nature of how the VCs are going to deal with you in in the circumstances where things don't work out well. And the most important thing we think is, look, you can't cut and run. You've got to kind of be there beside the entrepreneur and help them, and sometimes that means, you know, either winding down the business or finding an acquisition. But you know, most importantly, making sure that you respect the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial process.
1: You know, one of the things you you brought up, which I I, I again I find it interesting, it's really not surprising, is that when a VC invests in a particular company and whatever sector that may uh, that company may actually be in. You shouldn't expect to see that VC investing in another company in the same sector. Yeah,
0: yeah. So conflict is a real uh, important you know issue in this business because when you think about it, you know, if we invest, we're an investor in Lyft, for example. Um, and if you invest in Lyft, then that means kind of we're essentially kind of almost merging our brands to a certain extent, right? We are right. kind of getting the benefit of Lyft brand, and hopefully, they get benefit from our brand. And so, if we were to turn around and then invest in Uber it would be really hard from a signaling perspective for the market to kind of understand how can those three brands be aligned uh, as opposed to kind of just, you know, Andreessen Horowitz with one of them. So, yeah, conflict's a real issue. You know, conflict, unfortunately, sometimes is always in the eye of the beholder. So the Lyft-Uber example is probably an easy one, but, you know, sometimes companies pivot into other areas. But in general, you've got to think about kind of once you've aligned yourself on the brand side, uh, that's pretty much the horse that you've chosen to ride.
1: But I would imagine there's an element, and maybe it doesn't play out exactly in the day-to-day business, but with something like Uber and Lyft, you want the entire sector to benefit. You want to see right. all, you want to see all the boats, you know, uh, rising tide, et cetera, and uh, you don't want to see one fail, especially from a technological side.
0: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, and particularly in new markets like that, where you've got a new technology like the cell phone, of course, that enables you know a new use case for people to be able to hail a ride from their phone. You're absolutely right. It's much better off uh, if the industry as a whole grows, because what that does then is it grows the market size opportunity. And then, look, we need to let Lyft and Uber compete, and, you know, kind of ultimately the best executing company will win market share. But uh, So you're absolutely right. You know, we we definitely want to do that at the same time when you've got a direct substitution where, you know, a customer is either going to spend money on Lyft or they're going to spend money on Uber. It would be very hard for us to obviously, you know, kind of have multiple alignments in that space.
1: Is is a limited partner uh, the the best Approach when you're talking about the relationship between uh, between the VC and the startup.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to describe it. I mean, limited partner, as as you may know, has a bit of a legal context yeah. to it, so I, I'm not sure I would want to overstate it. Right. I think the way to think about it is think of the VC as clearly a financing source, uh, and then you know, kind of the VC as really kind of coach, mentor, partner in terms of thinking through important strategies for the company, and then I think the third area where you know we at Andreessen and Horowitz have spent a lot of time is. You know how can you tangibly help the company grow their business? So, uh, you know, I'll just give you an example. In our business, uh, we've got a group that is focused entirely on building customer and business development relationships with third parties who could, you know, ultimately benefit our companies. And that's good for us because if our companies do better, our investors do better. It's good for the companies because it helps them grow their customer base, and it's good for those external customers because it gives them access to early stage technology. So, I think that's the biggest sea change in the business over the last ten years is this idea that capital alone is not kind of what differentiates a venture capitalist, but value they can bring to the startup uh, and company formation
1: process. How, How does the VC react to a second funding round and whether or not they should invest further in that particular company?
0: Yeah, the general way it works is at least in the early stage, you know, if we invest in the first round of a company, our assumption is okay, when they go to raise the next round of financing, you know, hopefully there's, you know, another uh, party out there who finds the company valuable. Um, but in general, we will do what we call kind of our pro rata, which was we will typically kind of invest to maintain our existing percentage ownership of the company. And that's generally kind of with the way it works in the business for the first kind of round or two after you've initially invested. Beyond that, as you can imagine, right, the dollar values can escalate pretty quickly as these companies grow. And so we do have this funny relationship, which is sometimes in our business we compete against other venture capital firms, and then other times we are partnering with them because we are invested alongside them in our companies. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, in general, the way I would think about it as an entrepreneur is probably, you know, you really have to assume that each independent financing round can stand on its own. But if you're doing well, you're probably going to get at least some reasonable participation from your existing VCs.
1: You are a believer from this book. You are a believer in the (laughs) C-Corp. Yes.
0: Yes. Uh, You know, the the C-Corp has long been the kind of model for most of these companies. Um, And I think that's mostly – it's really uh, somewhat just because, look, it's become so established. It's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point in time that you know we all have all the Delaware law that makes it work well. Uh, C-Corps make it easier for us to give stock options to people. Uh, certainly when companies go public, you know, public investors are used to C-Corps, so you know, there's no you know, sacrosanct rule that says you can't do otherwise, but in general, uh, there's places to innovate here. I'm not sure that innovating on a corporate structure is necessarily uh, one of the best ones.
1: But how do you also deal with, especially when, when the startup really starts to pick up pace, e- eventually you will see, I think in many cases, some sort of separation, especially when you have two people or three people involved in the startup at the outset, you will see that breakaway, that you know, one person wants to go chase uh, some yeah. other idea. A- and then you get into quite a bit of, of legal issues in terms of who has the intellectual property, who has the rights, you know, there's so many different elements that you have to play out.
0: Yeah, no, this is a real issue. And I think it's something that unfortunately, um, you know, founders don't think as much about probably because you don't like to, right? You don't like to think of the idea that, you know, you might separate at some point in time from your co-founders in the business. But it's definitely advice that we give our companies when they first start, which is, you know, people change and things change over time, right? So, you know, one of you might want to be the CEO. The other person might decide, hey, this has been fun. I want to go do something else. And so it's important that you set up kind of the governance structure for the business to make sure that, hey, if something like that happens, the last thing you want is a co-founder who's no longer actively involved in the company having a disproportionate, say, in the strategy or the governance for the company. And so we try to help them set up those mechanisms to make sure that, you know, if these breakups happen, at least uh, they don't impact the ability of the company to go execute on their strategy.
1: What kind of role would the VC have if you get to the point where – a, a a firm is actually and they've had a level of success and they're thinking about going public and and you mentioned Lyft and obviously Lyft is yeah, has been sure. one that you know recently uh went onto the markets Uber as well and and maybe the biggest one most recently is this beyond meat company that it, yeah, that beyond that just meat, went yeah. public
0: yeah so in general what happens is you know part of our job of course is kind of on the on ramp to an IPO to help them, you know, get ready for that. And as you probably know and your listeners know, that means you've got to often change the board and add, you know, independent experts because you've got yeah. these new listing standards you have to satisfy. So part of our job is to help them navigate through that process. And then typically what happens, it's not it's not entirely the case, but is you know, at some period of time once the companies are public it's generally the case that the VCs will come off the board. That doesn't need to be you know, immediately, okay. but over the first couple of years of companies going public, in general, the VCs will kind of you know, give up their board seats, and you'll tend to have more kind of you know, permanent, professional kind of board members. And, and I think that's a reasonable thing that you know, benefits probably the company and then allows the VC also to kind of recycle, in other words, to kind of be able to take on new boards uh, that, are, that allow them to continue their ongoing investment business.
1: Having been on both sides of this, you also talk about the pitch. And, yeah. and what really goes into – what people should really think about when they are pitching a VC uh, for potential investment?
0: Yeah, so I think there's really two big takeaways that uh, we try to kind of uh, make clear in the book. One is just that you got to remember because, as we talked about earlier – a lot of what we invest in, unfortunately, doesn't materialize. We're looking for a very small number of companies that can ultimately be very big winners. And what that really leads you to is market size becomes very important, right? So, the real question the VCs are asking at the early stage is, let's just assume everything goes right. The question is, how big could this be? And there's no magic answer to that, but you know, as we just talked about, probably how big it can be means could it be a public company at some point in time in the future? And that probably means you have to believe you can sustain a couple billion dollar market capitalization. So that's kind of you know lesson number one, I think, for entrepreneurs to think about. Lesson number two is, at the early stage, again, there's not a whole lot other than team for the VCs to really evaluate, right? we You've kind of convinced them that market size is big. You've probably told them about what your product ideas are. But we know from experience that your product is going to change Many times, once you actually get into marketing and get feedback from customers, mm-hmm. the one thing that probably doesn't change is team. And so a lot of our evaluation is not why invest in this category, but why invest in you as a team? What is it that makes you uniquely qualified versus any of the other teams that we might see doing the same idea that you know gives us confidence that you're going to be responsive to the market? You're going to know how to hire people, grow the business, attract employees. And do all the things, of course, that will you know kind of be required to uh, generate success.
1: Do you think that 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 investors really have the understanding of the concept of the J curve? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, because I, I think everybody expects you have you have to have that incredible success right off the right off the bat, and, and in many cases, you will maybe take a step or two back, lose some, uh, you know, some. Uh, some profitability, but you know the path to success is going in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I think good. I think good VCs and particularly VCs uh, who have been in the startup world know that. Although it's very nice for us to kind of create this narrative fallacy at the end of the day that says, "Hey, everything was always up and to the right." And to your point, you know, kind of uh, it looks like a beautifully upper, upwardly sloped curve. The reality is, I think startups are you know a series of near death experiences. And I think experienced VCs understand that. And as long as they believe, hey, I believe the market is there, I believe in this team's ability to execute, and I believe their kind of uh, inclinations around the product that will address the, the problems of the market are there, uh, I think most VCs are willing to go through that roller coaster. This is definitely not a, uh, it's not a business for the faint of heart in that respect, which is uh, if your stomach gets queasy every time somebody misses a number or misfires, uh, you, know, you probably ought to look for another line of, uh, of employment.
1: Do you expect the, the, the world of VC to continue to grow?
0: Um, I do. I think it's gonna grow. I think private markets and private assets generally will grow. Um, and we've seen that certainly over the last fifteen to twenty years. Um, I think it's gonna be a very competitive market as it as it continues to be. Um and I think most importantly, it's gonna be a market where you know capital uh is not the scarce resource anymore. There will always be someone out there who's got more money than do we and who has a lower cost of capital than do we? And so I think the real question about survivorship for VC is can you actually bring value and add value to the company-building process? And I think for firms who can't do that, I think it's going to be a tough road ahead.
1: There's been a lot of talk in, in the first couple of months of this year about the IPO and, and whether right. or not we're going to see you – know, we obviously saw quite a few, uh, but are we going to continue to see companies want to dip their toe into that water in, in a in a significant rate here in 2019 and beyond?
0: Yeah, I I, I I believe we will. So if you look at what's happened to date – I think there's a little bit of kind of a bit of a tale of two cities happening in the IPO market. You've got kind of, you know, enterprise software companies that are have, you know, very attractive growth rates, you know, kind of 30, 40, 50%, but don't necessarily have to grow at 75 or 100%. And they've got kind of, you know, more line of sight into profitability. Those companies have traded very well. Uh, You know, for your listeners this morning, you know, there's a company CrowdStrike that is, you know, it may have opened already as we're talking, but is about to kind of open, and you know, it's really kind of in the sweet spot of where the institutional investors like the market. And then I think you've got companies, uh, you know, like uh, you know, an Uber for example or a Lyft, where they are, you know, very high growth companies, but you know, kind of are requiring, you know, a significant amount of cash consumption to to facilitate that growth. And I think those will be fine over time, but kind of given the macro uncertainty that we have around tariffs and other things that are kind of creating volatility in the market, it's understandable to me that why those companies kind of will have more volatility. So, but overall, if you talk to BlackRock or Fidelity or T. Rowe, a lot of these buyers in the IPO market, I think you know, there is you know, still very significant demand particularly as we talked about for those more traditional enterprise software companies.
1: And we'll still see occasionally the company that has gone public to you know want to go private especially when they get bought out by some sort of uh, hedge fund or or uh, or investment firm.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you know kind of there's a little bit of this natural flow which is you go public when you have a growth rate to be able to sustain yourself as a standalone business and then you're right, yeah. companies typically either go private or get acquired by public companies when they start to kind of get to the tail end of those growth rates yeah. and you know cash flow consistent cash flow generation becomes, you know, much more attractive asset for those businesses.
1: Scott, all the best with the book. Thank you, sir. All right. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you, Scott Cooper. The book is Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Uh, It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.